Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast for the Irish Times. I'm Jennifer Bray standing in today for Hugh. Today we are looking at the art of government and how the so-called command and control structures in Sinn Féin might get to grips with the civil service. And then we will be looking at the issue of public trust or lack thereof in government. Joining me today to discuss all this are my colleagues on the political team of the Irish Times, Harry McGee. Hello, Harry. Hi, Jennifer. And Cormac McQuinn. Hi, Cormac. Hi, Jen. Also joining us today is Jared Howland, who is a columnist and a former political advisor and consultant. Hello, Jared. Hello, Jennifer. Jared, I might come to you first. You had a column earlier this week in the Irish Times where you talked about the potentially tricky transition from opposition to government that might await Sinn Féin, should they succeed, of course. And you were coming at it from a couple of different angles, but one point you were making is that ministers are responsible for everything, but in charge of nothing. What is your thinking in the column? Can you explain what you mean by that phrase? Well, I just, from experience, government is extremely complicated. And even the word government is, is, is misleading in an extent that we talk about something called the government as if it was a generic uh, integrated whole. In fact, it's a very dissipated range of institutions uh, that are sometimes barely held together, that rarely uh, can be got to act in unison across government for a single purpose, except perhaps in a crisis. And of course, COVID is an example where, to a significant degree, uh, it did work. But it is an exception over years. And the institutional power, the power of stasis within different departments and the public service bodies that they rely on, from local authorities uh, to housing agencies to the HSE, is quite extraordinary. And when you talk to civil servants or politicians, you are frequently being told that they have difficulty finding out what's going on in agencies under their auspices, uh, that uh, they don't feel they have effective control and command over the system they're normally in charge of, and of course fully accountable uh, for in the doll. So the power that ministers hold looks far greater in the distance from the outside that it is in reality when they're seated behind their desk for the first time. Yeah, we saw a little bit of this, didn't we, recently in the debate around uh, the secondment of Tony Hullohan and Robert Watts' role in that. And I think in the doll, Catherine Murphy referred to uh, the civil service as the permanent government. You know, people might ask, what is the point in electing somebody, uh, you know, to who goes on to take this really lofty position as a minister, if in fact what you're saying is they don't have any power? They must have some degree of power. Of course, you have some degree of power and, you know, the cabinet is the ultimate decision making body. It decides what to legislate for and against. Um, And ultimately, while the civil service and the public service has a great deal of soft power, uh, particularly the use of time, of which politicians and governments are exceptionally time poor, 
which they tend to realise a little late in the day for their own good. Um, so there, there is a balance, but it is the, it, it is a synergising of the power in theory of a government to practical action on the ground. That, that, is, that is actually very challenging. And not to understand that before you go into government. And if you go back to the 2011 election, um, Labour and Fine Gael came in after an absence of 14 years. But many of their uh, people had been in government before and they had an infrastructure uh, of connection uh, with power around the state and its institutions. Sinn Féin is acquiring some of that, by the way. However, none of its people have ever been in government before. I don't for one moment think that's the be-all and the end-all. And I certainly get the point, and people are very entitled to it, that wouldn't it be great to have people who hadn't been there before so we have a fresh start? And that's very much part of Sinn Féin's appeal. So great to have a mandate for a fresh start, the change they emphatically promise and re-emphasise. But to deliver that change, you have to have capacity and a wiliness and a determination at which what you have done previously has not necessarily prepared you for. What does that actually look like? Um, you know, when if Sinn Féin succeed and all the opinion polls bear out a certain trend in that regard, what does that look like? You know, you mentioned their first 100 days mm. uh, in government. W- what tangibly do they need to do? You know, you hear talk of them needing to go in and uh, knock heads together in the civil service. Is, is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about a fundamental change in how the structures of the state are coordinated? Yes, but I think... A great deal of the position they find themselves in their first day in government will depend on how they handle themselves in opposition between this and then. One of the the big millstones around many governments' necks is their conduct and their promises in opposition. Uh, There is a feral political instinct on the way into a campaign to do whatever it takes, uh, including in terms of promises, uh, to get over the line. Realising, of course, that if you don't, that chance may never come again, at least for you, whatever about other people in your party subsequently. Uh, so that's, that instinct tends to overplay the hand. And that then mounts uh, in terms of problems in, in government. We saw that with Labour in 2011 and the infamous Tesco ad. Uh, promises were given out willy-nilly that absolutely uh, became millstones politically for that party almost almost immediately. And I think Sinn Féin has a lot of IOUs out. And I think it, it can continue down that path and somehow manage all of that afterwards in government. Or it can say, well, the, the economic situation is, is changing significantly. We have to more prior, prioritise and perhaps make it very clear that there will be an overwhelming priority in their first year or two in government on a single project. And that housing would obviously self-select and, and perhaps some issues on, on health as well. And that will do two things if they can manage it politically properly. One, it gives them a basis to absolutely align the institutions of government around a very few key priorities. It allows them to keep hope alive for the vast array of other commitments they have made, uh, but not to have them strangle them uh, in a first uh, or even a a second budget. Because that first budget, presuming it might be uh, for the calendar year 25, or if the election is in 25 for the calendar year 26, will be in a scenario that seems to be darkening all all the time. Uh, So the glory days of spending which were intimated as possible in Sinn Féin's uh, 2020 manifesto, are over. And if they continue to promise expenditure at that level in 25 or 26, how credible could it be? Yeah, and and Harry, I bring you in here. um, You know, this is one of the biggest, you know, difficulties, I think, perhaps for Sinn Féin is 
this idea that Jared mentioned about the IOUs that the party has about making these big promises in the lead up to the election. And, and, and Jared mentioned the, the Labour ad. And I think we all remember Enda Kenny's, you know, ad as well to Fine Gael would end the scandal of patients on hospital trolleys. And as we know, we've had record number of, of, of people on hospital trolleys in, in recent months. So what I'm saying is the party has promised a lot in recent months. You know, they point the, the finger at the government a lot and say, you're not going far enough, whether it's the mother and baby home scheme, whether it's fuel cuts, budgetary measures, you've named it. They've really presented themselves as kind of the solution for the housing crisis as well. So how difficult a task do you think it is for them to not only manage the expectations when they get in, but also, like Jared says, to temper the expectations beforehand? On its current trajectory, I think it's going to be impossible because there's a different dynamic between opposition and government. In opposition, you essentially, you write out your... your um, strategy uh, on the back of a cigarette packet. Well, not anymore. That's a very unwoke thing to say in 2022. Uh, on the back of uh, whatever uh, people use, on the back of your mobile phone, you know, there's no bigger uh, spent docket or losing docket in, in the world than the promises of a politician in advance of an election. And we've seen so many examples of it before. The Tesco one is the one that immediately comes to mind. But even manifestos that are implemented uh, when uh, drafted in opposition, uh, they founder very quickly in government sometimes. I remember the, um, the, the manifesto that Fianna Fáil had back in 1977, uh, which was an expansionist uh, manifesto, promised a lot of cuts, uh, an ending of rates, motor tax uh, and what have you. And within two years, that government got into terrible uh, difficulties. Uh, we had uh, Charlie Hawhey, uh, in the run-up to the 1987 election, talking about health cuts, cut the, uh, hurt the old, the sick and the, and the handicapped. And immediately afterwards, I mean, confronted with the reality of government, they had to perform a volt fast and implement a very, very rigid and austere uh, budget. So what Sinn Féin is going to have to do is it's going to have to either implement impossible uh, policies based on its, its current... Uh, very, very strong oppositional stance or it's going to have to affect a, a vote fast. What's happened to Sinn Féin over the past 20 years has been interesting because it has sometimes used the, the rhetoric of, of the left in order not to be outflanked by the likes of, for example, Paul Murphy back in 2014, People Before Profit and other left-wing parties and independents. But at the same time, there's been a parallel process happening with Sinn Féin in which it has been mollifying and modifying its uh, its policies. Uh, we can see it in the story that Cormac had this morning in relation to the Special Criminal Court and the emergency powers. Uh, you know, since they were introduced in 1973, it's almost 50 years now uh, for a temporary uh, law, a temporary emergency law, but that's Sinn Féin, Ella. Um, Sinn Féin have opposed it, but in the past two years, conscious of the fact that it is going... Um, uh, that it may be going into government, you know, it, it can't be in government and be opposed to one of the pillars of 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 justice policy uh, in, in the state. It has to be in a position where it recognises uh, the legitimacy and the validity of the army of the Gorda Shikana. And there can't be any doubt uh, about that. So Sinn Féin has been strategising in relation to that. But it is going to have to change its tune very quickly uh, between now and 2025, because if it doesn't, it's going to disappoint and disillusion so many of its base um, uh, that uh, it's it's going to uh, seep out uh, support and votes uh, as if it were a political 
colander. So that's the difficulty that Sinn Féin has. I think uh, some of the other points that Jared made to this very interesting uh, opinion piece yesterday are also very noteworthy as well. Uh, the relationship that Sinn Féin will have with the civil servants, uh, this party's, it's the party's obsession with control, its suspicion of outsiders. Um, now I think the experience of government in the North will help it somewhat, uh, but it, the, the dynamics in the South are very different to those in the North. And I think it will have to rechange those strategies. I think it'll have to make itself a little bit more open uh, to others, to other opinions and to other parties. And the other quandary that you pointed out to in his piece yesterday that I think is very relevant is who does Sinn Féin go into government with? Is it going to go into government with somebody more to the left or similarly to the left? Or is it going to have to go with one of the centrist parties, notably Fianna Fáil? And in that, there's also a, a full debate, as it were. Yeah, Cormac, that, that is an interesting point. I mean, it is the, a fact that if you look at the figures as they are now, and obviously a lot can change between now and 2025, if indeed that is when the next election is. What is Sinn Féin's quickest or easiest or most likely route to government? Because it does appear to be Fianna Fáil, doesn't it? And, and what did the Fianna Fáil uh, party have to say about that? Well, I mean, if you remember after 2020, there were kind of... Uh, Tentative attempts to form a government of the left, and they they ran into the into the ground almost instantly because Ireland's left, as it has always been, is way too fragmented and and doesn't doesn't have the critical mass of support overall to to form government on its own. Certainly at the moment, but it never has in its history. So yeah, you're you're right. Fianna Fáil is the the quickest way to a to a Sinn Féin government. Um, you know, under the leadership of Michal Martin, uh, he's been very clear you know, pretty pretty much 100% of the time that he, he would not envisage going into government with, with Sinn Féin. Uh, not everyone in his party agrees with that position. I mean, they, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a good cohort. Uh, we did a project last year, you know, showing that a fair chunk of, of uh, Fianna Fáil backbench TDs in particular would be open to going into government with Sinn Féin. So, I mean, it, you wouldn't rule it out. Who knows who the leader of Fianna Fáil would be at the next election, uh, you know, it's it's something. It's it's the the most likely route uh, to power for for Mary Lou Macdonald. Um, but to to return to the kind of issues that Jared was talking about, I mean, um, I was at the most recent Sinn Fein Ardesh back in October, and it was the first one that I've attended where it seemed to me that all of the messaging was geared towards Sinn Fein. This is what we would do in government. We're preparing for government, you know, and and the IOUs that we're talking about. There was there was a line in Mary Lou Macdonald's speech where she promised that her, her Sinn Féin government would be one that will end the housing crisis, build an all Ireland health service, tackle the cost of living crisis, and guarantee your right to retire on a full state pension at the age of sixty five. They're all very massively ambitious, uh, you know, goals. Uh, I, I would I would suggest that if the, any of them were easy to solve, the current government would have done it already or will be doing it. Uh, you know, it, it, Sinn Féin will, will, will get a, a reality check where, if and when it does get into power that all of these things are not simple. I, even the last one, the, the pension age of being returning it to 65, I mean, it was the issue of the 2020 election. There, there is an imminent government decision due on, on the pension age issue. If as is expected, as the Pension Commission recommended, there will be a gradual increase in the pension age over the coming years, uh, you know, and that's decided upon and passed. It, Sinn Féin takes power in 2025. Do they reverse that? You know, maybe they will, or maybe they'll be pragmatic and realise that, you know, there'll be a massive bill if they if they did that and they can blame the, the last crowd for, for bringing it in and might be one of the 
one of the things that we see them uh, not deliver on uh, early on in their new term. But, um, you know, that was the other thing about that Ardesh as well. It was the first time that they uh, signalled that they their outright opposition to a special criminal court uh, was being dropped. You know, it, they, they passed a motion saying that there's a need for non-jury courts in exceptional circumstances. Uh, they primarily were talking about organised crime, but Mary Lou Macdonald also confirmed that they meant dissident Republican terrorism as well. You know, so it, it's, it's this move... Uh, moved to position Sinn Féin as, as a government that can be in power uh, south of the border. Um, and the, in, in terms of interactions with the civil service, you, you know, you'll, you'll, go to, you'll go to Sinn Féin press conferences with David Cullinan, the health spokesperson, and he'll, he'll always talk about, if I was Minister for Health, I would do this, that and the other. He's also had meetings with, with Robert Watt, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, you know, to try and, uh, you know, touch base to... to generate contacts and also to to run run things by them and Sinn Féin policies by the civil service and you know would these things be possible so it, it I, we are seeing a a broad uh, effort from Sinn Féin to to get into get into a position where it's it can go to the electorate saying we're we're ready to take power next time around yeah absolutely and i've no doubt whatsoever that Ono Bryn is making or has similar contacts uh, in in the department of housing and Jared, just on that point Sinn Féin say, you know, they will end the housing crisis and they will bring the pension age back down. All those promises mentioned by Cormac there. But if you listen to them in the doll, they say that they have no faith in Fianna Fáil, for example, to uh, resolve the issues uh, in the housing crisis. And, you know, when you look back at the general election campaign, they accuse the party of flip-flopping on the pension age. So how exactly could these two parties get together in 2025 and get anything done? Oh, I suggest it could be done very easily, Jennifer. Uh, we saw what happened after the last election. All sorts of impossible things were done in short order. Well, short order being three or four months. So uh, there, there is ultimately no difficulty about these things because what focuses the mind is the prospect of another general election. And that's what happens if you can't form a government. And uh, the, the history of uh, Turkey's voting for Christmas is, frankly, very limited. Uh, so I predict uh, in the next all, it is more likely than not the government will be formed. And if uh, Sinn Féin are the largest party, uh, then a government has to be formed around it, more than likely. And Jared, I'd, I'd like to come back to another point in, in your piece where you talk about how the power would reorientate back towards the parliamentary party mm. in Sinn Féin. Um, you might tell us your thinking on that a little bit and how much of a change that would be for them, given their, you know, a lot of commentary around their centralised command mm. and control structures. Well, I, d I hope I didn't say uh, it would reorientate back towards the Parliamentary Party because it's never been there hitherto. What I, I think I meant to try and say was it will re will orientate towards its Parliamentary Party in, in future uh, in, in government. I mean, Sinn Féin is the last holdout of democratic centralism. Uh, its competitor, uh, official uh, Sinn Féin organisation, which became Sinn Féin the Workers' Party at the time of its split from democratic left, that's the whole crisis in that party was about that issue. It was about the relevant power of elected party uh, national executive and the parliamentary party, uh, who were, of course, elected by the people, which the members of the national executive are not. And that uh, tension in the, in the official uh, Sinn Féin uh, precipitated the birth of the democratic left, which is based on its parliamentary party. That has never uh, happened in Sinn Féin, uh, and its controlling uh, force, it's, it's not hidden, it's not secret, is its elected national executive. And that's fine. Uh, I don't have fundamental problem with that, but I can tell you uh, it won't work in government. 
And by that is that if Sinn Féin has a positive 8, 9, 10 senior ministers, 8, 9, 10 junior ministers, the idea that that system can operate at speed over hours in a given day through the days of the week from one week to the next is complete, utter, absolute fantasy. Uh, and th that means that those members of the Sinn Féin Parliamentary Party who take up those positions of office have to have, will be forced to exercise autonomy uh, around their departmental roles. They will have to, as a group, uh, operate together in government, within government, sometimes, as I say, literally in an hour-by-hour -hour situation uh, with their coalition partners, with perhaps independent TDs they depend on, with outside interest groups, and the idea that an outside body sitting somewhere else meeting, however often, uh, can somehow effectively keep the hand of control over the apparatus of government, however hard it tries, won't work. And that's particularly true, isn't it, Jared? Because really the nature of government is that you have to make sometimes unpalatable decisions, but very quickly. You don't have time to be referring back to an outwards body or anything of the like. You need to, like you say, have the autonomy and the wherewithal to make that on the spot. Um, and that's what needs to change. Is that what you're saying effectively? Yes. And, you know, you're, you're going into a cabinet meeting uh, and it emerges late at night, early in the morning, that one of your coalition partners has a problem on an issue. Uh, you're, you don't have time to have a meeting of your national executive. Uh, it's, that's just not how it works. That you're, as I say, um, depending on the votes of independent TDs, their position in the evening may not be the same as their position in the morning. You just need to get on with it. Absolutely. And Harry, is it not the case in some ways that, you know, the resignation of... Violet Ann Wynne from Sinn Féin um, earlier this year gave us that insight again into, in some ways, how the party is run. You know, she said that staff were picked for her. Um, sometimes questions were picked for her in the doll. Um, and I think there were a lot of common pieces at the time about how staff in the party are more loyal to the party and the party project than the politician. Does this raise questions for you about how ministers uh, in a hypothetical Sinn Féin government would operate? Would it be different to how it is now? Yeah, well, I mean, we know uh, about the evolution uh, of man. So uh, the evolution of political parties, Sinn Féin, have not yet reached the level of dysfunction that all the established political parties have. Uh, they still have um, uh, a uh, uh, they still have a lot of of control and centralised control uh, within the party. I think that will begin to dissipate uh, as time goes on. I think that in 10 years time, in 15 years time, it will be harder to distinguish uh, um, Sinn Féin uh, from from other parties. I think it would become increasingly centrist as time goes on. I think that once a party goes into government, I think the 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 responsibilities of government tend to bring uh, out uh, a, a hitherto undiscovered innate conservatism. And I think that that we will see that phenomenon uh, become more apparent uh, with Sinn Féin as uh, time uh, goes on. I think the party is is pretty ruthless. Uh, I think uh, um, now I, I hesitate to to uh, to quote the mafia, but it's 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 uh, it's never personal; it's always business. And I, I think that it looks at candidates uh, um, to see if uh, which of the candidates uh, uh, will will have the best chance of of succeeding and and forwarding the party's agenda. One of the things that happened in twenty twenty, which was very unshin Fein like, is that they weren't prepared for the election. They were cruising for a bruising. They were talking about consolidation. They weren't expected to make any gains and they might even have uh, expected to ship losses. But there was a change 
that many people, including myself, didn't uh, fully uh, recognise uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the political atmosphere. And Sinn Féin did exceedingly well. But one of the one of the things that happened is that some people were elected as TDs who perhaps weren't considered by Sinn Féin to be optimum uh, TDs. I think there will be a process of weeding uh, that will take place over the next uh, year or two uh, to ensure that Sinn Féin has its best possible candidates in the next election. I think the party will do better in the next election, but I, I wouldn't over-egg um, expectations. Uh, politics is a very strange uh, cycle, and if you're the flavour of the month, uh, one month, uh, you can very quickly fall out of flavour. A little bit like Waterford in the hurling championship, brilliant in the league, and now uh, out of the championship uh, in in at the end of May. So you ha- you have to be cognizant of of that as well. Just in terms of flexibility, they they did it up in the north, but I think the pace of government in the north is a little bit slower. And the responsibilities of government in the north are not quite as high as they are in the state down here because of the fact that London still controls uh, a lot of the finance and a lot of the decisions and the key decisions in relation to finance. But we did see situations in the north where big policy decisions were referred uh, to advisors as opposed to the actual uh, politicians. I think Gerard is right. I don't think they will have time, uh, nor will they have the, the comfort of being able to do that in the south, especially when decisions uh, will have to be done uh, quickly. Um, I I think the biggest, I think the party's going to get into trouble on a couple of issues. I think climate change is going to be a big problem for the party. Uh, We're meant to to, to go to minus 51% by 2030. And none of the Sinn Féin policies at the moment have a remote possibility of achieving that. And if they do go into government in 2025, that's going to be a huge problem for them. And they will have to be very quick and very flexible and very ruthless in terms of, um, of, 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 uh, uh, executing those policies. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, it will alienate uh, a lot of its base uh, in doing so. So that's another consideration it has to have as well. Absolutely. And two final questions then on this before we move on uh, to the next topic. Uh, one for Jared and one for, for Cormac. I'll come to you first, Jared. I think when people um, read articles, uh, whether they're opinion pieces or whatever it may be about Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or or any of the government parties of previous years, they're, they're kind of almost used to what they're used to seeing. But sometimes I think when people see these articles written about Sinn Féin, they think, you know, maybe rightly so, that people are, you know, resisting the, the change of the status quo or whatever. So I think it probably is only a fair question to ask when we're talking about your article about how Sinn Féin would approach the art of government, I think was one of the phrases that you, that you used. What is your take on actually how... Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Greens have come to grips with the institutions of the state. Have they mastered the art of government at any stage along the way? Of course not. Uh, and that's why people who vote for Sinn Féin feel uh, that wouldn't it be great if we, have, if we have people who didn't have that bad experience. Uh, what we need is a fresh start. and That's a huge part of their appeal and their political dynamic. And uh, the problem for the state is that post-2011, the opportunity for reform uh, was addressed and then abandoned. Okay. Um, Cormac, I'll give you the final word on this. Uh, Harry mentioned there the Sinn Féin strategy in relation to the next election. They're going to be more clever, wily with, with candidates. Obviously, two Green TDs went overboard recently um, after they voted with the opposition and with Sinn Féin on the National Maternity Hospital. Um, and it did make people think about the majority in the Dáil and the fact that, we're you know, the government is down to, I think, just one extra vote. 80 votes for the government, 79 votes for the opposition. And there was a bit of talk of an election. I mean, I don't think anybody really believes it's going to happen soon. But if things get 
hairy over the next couple of months. What do you think? Is is 2025 still the date in your head or is that certainly the date that you're hoping for? Do you know, I think it will be 2025 still because we, we've seen in recent years uh, the, the utter terror that politicians seem to have in going to the electorate. I mean, confidence and supply lasted, uh, you know, almost a full term uh, tr- just no one, no one expected it to to last beyond two years. I'd I'd suggest you know, um. So yeah, no, I I'd be surprised if we don't have an election before. I'd be very surprised if we have an election before twenty twenty five. Um, it gives Sinn Fein a lot of time to to plan the the election. I I, I think that their their election machine will be formidable next time around. They they will have learned from the mistakes of twenty twenty. Uh, commentators on the on the elections, the assembly elections in the north. A lot of people were talking about uh, the the um, how how slick the the Sinn Fein machine was. Uh, I think we can expect that here as well. Um, the other thing that you know, in terms of government numbers. As we all know, they they have a number of independent TDs that often vote with them. They won't be particularly comfortable with that if they if they they lose any more TDs. But but you know they they get over it. I'd say to an avoid an election, and um, but I I think we will see a continuation of uh, Sinn Fein's strategy of you know tabling motions on on issues like the National Maternity Hospital last week. That you know it, it, the, the motion comes just as as a controversy is running out of steam and it drags it into a following week and it makes things very uncomfortable for government backbenchers you know so that's that, that's that's been a successful strategy for them so far uh, i think that will continue and you never know there might be one or two more coalition tds j- jump overboard with certainly there will be Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael backbenchers that will realize that the increasing power that they have given the the very tight numbers in the doll at the moment so yeah, it'd be be interesting to see if 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 the government lose any more, um, and just uh, sorry, one other thing on on the whole Sinn Fein issue, uh, it's, it's striking. We've spoken for quite a while about them now, but we haven't once mentioned their their raising detra, their their overarching ambition, which is of course to uh, to create a united Ireland. Um, you know, in recent assembly elections, that was played down in terms of of uh, focusing on bread and butter butter issues. But then, you know, it was fairly quickly afterwards we had Mary Lou Macdonald saying that she would hope to see a a border poll within five years and things like that. So uh, in terms of Sinn Féin and government in the South, it would be interesting to see how they would prioritise that overarching goal with with the the day to day issues issues of government and uh, how how coalition partners would uh, reconcile the, the different priorities. Fianna Fáil, as we know, is a Republican party, but they they've a very much more softly softly approach to to developing United Ireland. So that that could that will be an interesting dynamic if if uh, we do end up with a, a Sinn Féin led coalition. Absolutely. Okay, we'll take a short break now, after which we'll discuss a new study which shows quite a sizable lack of trust in government amongst the Irish public. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Welcome back. 
Now, new research commissioned by UCD shows that almost half of Irish people do not trust the government to be honest and truthful, while a majority believe that the government communicates inaccurate and biased information. And the Irish public's perception of the government is more negative than other European nations, although we do trail behind the UK and Poland, who rate their governments worse across several different measures. Jared, I would argue that the trust in government and its associated levers has been low for quite some time. We've had various studies down through the years which showed much higher levels uh, of distrust, particularly after the recession and the Troika came to town. What do you think the reason might be for this distrust and, and should we be worried about it? Well, we've been moving into a post-trust society for two generations, uh, you know, uh, particularly right on television, modern media, uh, the uh, sl- first slow and then rapid um, retraction of uh, religion and religious belief, respect for authority that was associated with it, but included the guards, government, and so on, banks, were all very respected institutions. Uh, and mostly now, not all of them are, are on the floor. Uh, so this is a very, very long time in progress. In addition, I think you have a particular Irish dynamic, which is that since 2011, you have a new generation, young, able, educated, who look at a future that is not equal uh, to their parents' prospects. And I think that is a huge dislocating factor in terms of public trust, in terms of affinity with the state. In you know, So basically, I think there's a world here in Ireland of old fellas like me who are lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time uh, and through no uh, particular attributes of our own, uh, you know, got on after a fashion. And people who were at least our equal, if not much better, significantly younger, are looking at a precipice uh, to attain the modest uh, achievements uh, in, in terms of personal property and so on that, that we did. And that is a huge source of disaffection. So perhaps, Jared, this is why the message of change is so appealing to particularly younger voters. Of course. Because if you're under 40 and you're, uh, I won't say homeless, but you're houseless, you don't see the prospect, uh, you want to get married, you want to start family, all of those things. Um, and you know, even my parents, who are paying astronomical interest rates in the 1980s, people forget that. they Those people at that time ha- had that challenge. Uh, they were still able to do it, by and large. Uh, and now that's simply impossible. Uh, and it breeds... The, how would you put it, uh, if you don't have a secure place to live, either secure long-term rental on a continental model, which is just beginning to, to be exampled here, or own your own home, you have a fundamental sense of insecurity. In addition to which, uh, jobs for life are long over. Our parents used to have those, or my parents, your grandparents, my parents had those, but they're completely gone. And the other thing is gone are pensions. Uh, so if you have a pension overwhelmingly it's one you save for yourself out of the surplus you have after you paid for your accommodation or your mortgage and the problem for people under 40 is they don't have a surplus to invest in a pension so they are damned uh, to be the longest lived generation in human history Uh, they will live into an old age where instead of uh, paying a 20-year mortgage they will pay a 30-year mortgage their capacity to save for a pension will be diminished. And I think you're looking at a lot of older poverty and insecurity going into the future. And that's not to mention climate change and other issues. And Harry, I mentioned there that there have been studies which have previously shown levels of distrust all the way up to 90%. 
um, in political parties, um, all carried out by different groups. So you can't really compare them side by side per se. But could it possibly be the case, do you think, that the government's handling of the COVID pandemic has improved the position? Or do you think that that has no role to play whatsoever in terms of how people regard the government? One of the things that strikes me about this piece of research is that it's it's as much a reflection on the people who have responded to the research as to the people who are the subjects um, of it. I mean, I know from being around politicians all my working life, you know, that the the, the level of distrust, the level of cynicism, the level of scepticism towards politicians and towards politi- political parties is not justified. I mean, it might be justified a little bit and you might get the uh, the occasional politician telling the occasional porcupine or being economical with the verite, to use the euphemism that that's used. But I, I found it really depressing reading the, the these findings uh, to show that as a class, that politicians just have no level of trust uh, with the wider community. And if I were a politician, I'd almost be saying, I mean, why should I even bother? You know, I, I, I do my best. I, I'm there. I mean, politicians have a pretty, you know, they have a pretty yucky life. They, especially those from the country, they they spend half the time in Dublin. Uh, they're, they they work long hours. Uh, they because it's a, a clientelist system we have in Ireland. They spend a lot of time responding to, um, to 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 local queries from their from their constituents. And then for many of them, when they go home at the weekend, it's just a round of clinics and it's a round of meetings. You know, it's it's a it's a very involved lifestyle with very downtime and that time, and they do get well rewarded, but the rewards I I, I think are are justified in in relation uh, to to the amount of work that they come in, and that goes for politicians from all parties uh, on the right of, of the spectrum and on the left of the spectrum, but I, I think it reflects what's happened in society. I think our society has changed radically uh, over the past twenty years. It's far more fragmented now, uh, there isn't the same fealty uh, to the institutions of state or to political parties that there might have been 30 or 40 years ago. And a lot of that is a good thing because, you know, um, there was a kind of, sometimes there was a little bit of a lemming-like uh, uh, nature to, to Irish society where, where just people followed a particular cause just because there was a tradition of following that, that cause without uh, interrogating it. So we've become a more fragmented and urbanised uh, society, uh, uh, but I, I think the the some of the the the, sh- the cynicism towards politicians is kind of shallow, you know that people don't really engage uh, in terms of their thinking on politics and on politicians. So when I see figures that are so high in relation to the levels of distrust, I, I don't question the basis of the survey. There were two thousand people surveyed in Ireland. But I just I just think that people are are not really uh, engaging in 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 thought out responses to what politicians will do. I'm not saying the politicians should get a score of 100 percent on trustworthiness, but I think it should be a little bit higher than the deeply negative uh, figures um, that uh, we see here. And maybe I sound like a complete establishmentarian by saying all that, but I do feel strongly about about it. I think the politicians generally get a bad deal from the public. And Cormac, I'll give you the final word on this. We could take a kind of jaded view about this and kind of shrug our shoulders and say, okay, that's that. People don't trust the government or political parties. 
Or we could look at the longer term problem here. I mean, is trust not a really important thing long term? Because think of the long term challenges we have to, to solve climate change, how you mentioned earlier, societal changes. You mentioned pensions earlier. We talked about the pandemic, about future pandemics. You know, trust is important long term, um, is it not? In an ideal world, a, a large proportion of people would trust would trust their government. But what struck me about that survey was that I mean, uh, just under fifty percent said that they they don't trust the government. Well, just under fifty percent of people didn't vote for the government. I think it speaks to a to a, a growing polarization in uh, in politics here and elsewhere. So we, we, here we've got the. The, the the parties that would claim to represent change versus the establishment parties of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, you know, Brexit in the UK split almost half and half as well. Republicans and Democrats in the United States, you know, yeah, but but I, so you know, so there's certainly been growing polarization here and and elsewhere in recent years. I what I wonder, and I I I haven't seen similar surveys from from the past, but I, I wonder was there a time when when people uh, voted one way, but still had a, a good level of trust in the in the government that they didn't vote for. Uh, you know, I'd be interested to see if there was com- comparisons there. Um, but but yeah, I mean, given the scale of the the kind of crises that that we have been facing in recent years between Brexit, the pandemic, the Ukraine war, uh, you know, <laughs> it'd be nice to to feel that you you could trust who whoever has taken power to uh, to do to do the right thing and to make the right decisions. And uh, it is it is unfortunate and uh, something that that I think needs working on. That that you know almost half of people don't don't trust uh, the government that's in place at the moment to to do that. Yeah, something to think about there. Okay, well that's all we have time for. Thanks to producer Declan Conlon and sound engineer JJ Vernon. Thanks to my guests Harry Cormac and Jared. Hugh is back next week. Until then, thanks very much for listening.